Well, if you would, take out your Bible this morning and turn with me to the book of Acts. We'll be continuing through our series this morning in Acts chapter 24. And as you turn there, I just want to take a moment and pause and just recognize what's going on in the life of this church and how amazing it is. Uh, I've been struck as we've walked through the book of Acts in these past few months, as Pastor Jeremy has led us through it and has preached through it, that we started in the book with a command from Jesus that the gospel would go forward in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. And we stand here this morning and what many at that time who heard those words from Jesus would consider to be the ends of the earth. And yet, we're talking about planting churches in Inca, Peru, New Orleans, Louisiana, and in China. And the gospel is not stopping there. The church is still moving forward. Jesus is still moving forward, even today. And you heard a group of people up here this morning who they would, by their own admission, have said, and he's using the unlikeliest of people to do it. People like them, people like you, and people like me. Isn't it amazing all that God is doing in the life of this church and his church right now. I just wanted to, to pause and reflect on this morning as we turn to Acts chapter 24, but I'm going to invite you now to stand and read God's holy, perfect word in reverence as we stand. We're beginning in verse 14 this morning as we read. Luke writes to us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's quoting Paul who says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word this morning, as we continue in worship, Father, as we look through this text, may we see the words of hope. God, we have already sung so much about a hope that is in Jesus and a hope that is in a resurrection. God, imprint that on our hearts now through this text this morning. God, remind us of the hope that we have. It's not just an abstract word that we throw about to, to make ourselves feel better. But it, hope is a person, and his name is Jesus. Father, bless this time as we study your word. It's your name we pray. Amen. Well, I demand an apology. That's no phrase any of us want to hear, much less a preacher right after he has finished preaching a sermon. Now, these are not words that I have heard yet, but these were words by the Charles Wesley once heard as he was finishing preaching a sermon. Charles Wesley, who wrote many of the hymns we sing, such as, And Can It Be, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He was a preacher and a revivalist of sorts. One night as he finished preaching, a man walked up to him, an older man, stared him in the eyes and said, I demand an apology. He said, I demand an apology for you have offended me because you called me a Pharisee. Charles Wesley, without blinking an eye, stared right back at him and he said, Sir, I still insist you are a Pharisee. My commission is to show you your sins and I shall make no apology for doing so. You are a sinner under eternal damnation. Now that doesn't sound much like an apology to me. But it's exactly what the man needed to hear. At this time in his ministry, Charles Wesley was undercoming such trouble everywhere he went. There were riots everywhere he went. There, were, there was an upturn in the city. People were seeking to harm him. He would write in his diary about one such instance. He said, I had just named my text at St. Ives. So imagine he's standing and he's about to preach 
and he says, turn with me to the book of Judges or the book of Acts or wherever he was preaching from. No sooner had he done that than he writes, when an army of rebels broke in upon us, they began in a most outrageous manner threatening to murder the people if they did not go out in that moment. They broke the sconces, dashed the windows in pieces, tore away the shutters and all but the stone walls of the building. I stood silently looking on, but mine eyes were unto the Lord. They swore bitterly I should not preach there again, which I disproved by immediately telling them Christ died for them all. Several times they lifted up their hands and their clubs to strike me, but a stronger arm restrained them. They beat and dragged the women about, particularly one of a great age, and trampled on them without mercy. The longer they stayed and the more they raged, the more power I found from above. We come to our text this morning, we find someone who is sort of a precedent for Charles Wesley. Everywhere he went, he found trouble. Everywhere he went, he found someone wanting to kill him. Everywhere he went, they said, do not preach about this Jesus. And everywhere he went, he said, let me tell you about the only hope you have, and it's a man named Jesus. We come here to Acts chapter 24 this morning. As we've heard last week at this point, Paul has been arrested much for his protection. He was in Jerusalem and he was in the temple and, and the Jews found him there. They caused a riot and they were actually making a plot to kill him. They were trying to use some of the government there to call him out into a trial and they were going to ambush him and kill him. Well, through the providence of God and through Paul's nephew, the plan got out and then Paul is taken by half of a Roman legion out of the city. And he's been awaiting trial now for five days. He's been waiting for his accusers to come and lay out the formal charges before Felix, the governor of the area, so that the, the trial can be heard, the verdict can be made, and they can figure out what to do with him. We pick up in verse 1, it says, And after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and the spokesman, one Tertullus. This man Tertullus, he's sort of like a Roman Johnny Cochran. He's a lawyer. He's really, really good at what he does. He speaks lots of really good, big, verbose words, and he usually wins the cases. So the Jews go, we need the best to finally shut Paul up. So we're going to throw everything we've got and convince Tertullus to try our case for us. So he comes down with them. It says, they laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him of saying, so here's the scene, the judge has walked in, the people's court theme has been playing as they walk in, and everyone stands at the podiums, and they're ready to go, the plaintiffs and the defendants are all there, and Tertullus stands up, and he looks at Felix, and listen to what he says about the case laid before Paul. He says, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, and everywhere and in every way, we accept this with all gratitude. Now there is a technical term here for what Tertullus is doing. There, there's a Latin term, and, and it pronoun is pronounced or translates roughly as brown nosing. <laughs> What Tertullus here is doing is he's looking at Felix and he says, Oh, Felix, you are the best governor this region has ever had. You have done so many great things for our people. You have helped us in so many ways and so many things. Man, you are just the best. Now, the funny thing is Roman history doesn't record Felix in the same way. As a matter of fact, you have to study really, really, really hard to find any good thing that Felix did as he was governor. As a matter of fact, his time was marked by rebellions and insurrections. Felix is on kind of a tightrope here. Rome is not too happy with him because he can't control the area he governs. So here Tertullus is just buttering him up. It's the same thing as when someone comes to you at work and says, hey, have I told you lately, you just are really good at your job. By the way, did you just get a haircut? Have you been working out? 
man, this is really good. I, uh, by the way, I need you to do one thing for me. Or our parents' favorite thing is when our children come to us unbeknownst and say, Mom and Dada, I love you. And you know something is coming after that. It's similar to what Tertullus is doing here. And so he begins to hopefully sway Felix over, get him in his good graces. Hopefully he'll hear his case more favorably. And he picks up and he says, but to detain you no, to detain you no further, I beg your kindness to hear us briefly. This is basically what he says. And one more thing in conclusion, you know you got about 20 more minutes left. So he says, but to detain you no further, I'll be brief. Here is what we have before us. Verse 5, For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So Tertullus lays out the charges, and there are, there are three basic charges that Tertullus lays out here with the help of the Sanhedrin. He says Paul has been guilty of sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. Now, to Felix, the charge of sacrilege doesn't really mean a whole lot. He's just there to make sure the Jews are happy and they keep peace. The, theological matters, matters of religion, he doesn't care about so long as no one's getting killed, no one's trying to overthrow the government. He's happy, you just do your thing and, and you prosecute and do whatever you need to. However, sedition and sectarianism, those were big deals. Felix's ears would have perked up at the thought of that because, again, he's already had rebellions in his area. We, we read that Paul was mistaken in the temple by the Roman officials for being one who had led an insurrection. These charges did not come lightly, and neither was the sentence. If Paul were to be found guilty of either of those charges, he would be put to death, which is exactly what the Jews want. So they say, we're going to get him. We're going to say he has been guilty of sedition and sectarianism. We're going to set him up so that he has no other choice but to say, yeah, I'm starting an uprising. I'm trying to overthrow the Roman government and insert a new government. I'm trying to insert a new order, a new kingdom. They've thought about this a little bit anyways. But they tried to set him up here towards the end of verse uh, of verse 6. He says, he even tried to profane the temple. This is the charge of sacrilege. Felix wouldn't care much about this, but we remember what the charge was. The Jews thought he had brought Gentiles into the inner courts of the temple. That'd be like bringing a Tennessee fan to Rupp Arena. You just don't do it. <laughs> so that was the charge before Paul. And they, they bring this out, they lay it out, and they say, but if you examine him, Felix, and I'm sure Tertullus said, because you are such an excellent prosecuting attorney and detective and you are just the greatest there's ever been, surely you can get the truth out of him that he's been hiding from us. Their strategy here is pretty simple. They say, if we give Paul an opportunity to preach Jesus, he's not going to miss it. We have tried to stop him every step of the way from preaching Jesus. We have stoned him. We've left him for dead. We've arrested him. And all the time, he keeps coming back, and he keeps singing hymns, he keeps preaching, and he keeps talking about Jesus. Well, what if we give him a platform to do it one time? What if this time we actually want him to preach about Jesus? So they tell, Tertull, or they tell Felix, this man's guilty of sedition, He's claiming that someone other than Rome is in authority. Well, we know the message of Paul. What does he say? That Christ is king. The Jews here are thinking, if we give him enough rope, he's going to hang himself. We're going to set him up. Felix is going to ask him, is there a new king? Is there a new kingdom? Is there a new ruler? 
And Paul's going to say, absolutely, and his name is Jesus. And then they're going to say, well, case closed. Felix can condemn him to death. We're rid of Paul. Thank goodness. But Paul's not going to fall for that. The text continues and it says, The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so in verse 9. And then in verse 10 it says, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. And he says, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now notice his words aren't quite as flowery as Tertullus's. He's not quite trying to bend Felix's ears his way. And some say that this may be a poor attempt at flattery. Paul's not trying to flatter. Paul is actually being genuine when he's thankful that Felix is overhearing this because of what he says. He says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I make my defense. He's saying, I know you know our customs. I know you know our religion. I know you know our ways. And because of that, I'm thankful you're here because you have context for the situation. It's not flattery. It's truth. Paul then goes on and he continues to just pick apart the argument and the charges laid against him. He says, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. He says, look, it's been 12 days since I arrived in Jerusalem. Five of them I've spent here in prison. The majority of the other seven, I was in the temple going through a purification ritual as the Nazarenes do. I didn't have time to start a riot. That's not necessarily something you can do overnight anymore. Or at least in those days you couldn't. And he says, they didn't find me disputing with anyone when they came. I wasn't stirring up a crowd either in the temple, the synagogues, in the city. Nowhere was I trying to start a riot. Okay, then Paul, what were you doing? And he says, but neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you. Oh, now the Jews' ears are perked up. The high priest, Ananias, is leaning in. He's going, oh, we got him. We laid out the trap, and he's going to walk right into it. Yeah, he said he's not starting a riot. He's not starting up a, a new breed, a new religion, a new government. But he's going to confess, and we know what he's going to confess. He's going to confess Jesus is king. He's going to walk right into the trap we've laid for him. After all these years, we finally got Paul. And he says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which is what Christians were called then, it's kind of a derisive term as we've heard already. It's based off of John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So they said, oh, the way, okay. But Felix had context. He knew what the way was. He knew what they said, what they believed. He says, according to the way, which they call a sect, so they're saying I'm being sectarian, but Felix, you know the way. You know that's not who we are. You know that's not what we're doing. He says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. At this point, I'm sure Ananias is ready to rip his hair out of his head. Because Paul has just stared him down and said, I see your trap. But Ananias, there's something more important going on here. Say, so Ananias, you're, you're accusing me of forsaking the faith of our fathers. Now, Ananias, I used to be a Pharisee. I stood where you're standing now. I prosecuted these men who said Jesus was the way. I once was a man named Saul of Tarsus who sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I know it all. I am all about the faith of our fathers. It says you, Ananias, you're the one guilty of heresy and blasphemy, not me. He says, 
because I have kept the law and the prophets and all that Moses has taught. And you know what? Yes, there is a hope there, and it's a hope in a resurrection, a hope that you believe is a Pharisee. But it's a hope I've seen realized, and that's made all the difference in the world. And Paul continues to, to tack off the last charge here. He says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. He said, When I came to Jerusalem, what was I doing? I was coming to give an offering from the Gentile Christians to the Jews there and to present alms and offerings in the temple. I was coming out of goodwill. And he says, While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. He's, he's reinforcing here. I was there. There was no riot. I was there worshiping, and they came, and they started the riot. They should be on trial here, not me. And he says, while I was doing this, they found me in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Now, this is Paul being really smart with the Roman legal system. In order for someone to be tried of a crime, the person presenting the charges had to be there to make a case. So Paul says, those who say I was profaning the temple, look around the room. They ain't here, Felix. And that's all you need to know. They know they don't have a case. This is wasting your time and everyone else's. But I'm going to take my opportunity and tell them why they really brought me here. I'm not going to let them off that easy. He says, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Again, he is just really pouring salt in the wound here now. He's referencing them back to everything he's already said to them in the council. He's referencing back to them to every word that he's already said that he has told them, Jesus is Lord and you are not. And that's the reason Paul is there, is because they don't want to hear it. They want to rid the world and themselves of that annoying message. And Paul just keeps pressing right on in. He says, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead, that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul just looks at it and he says, look, sedition, sectarianism, they got no charge. Sacrilege, Felix, I know you don't care about that because you just want to make sure that we're all happy and we're not trying to start another riot here, but that's really why I'm here. And how often in the book of Acts have we seen this? People will listen to Paul, they'll listen to his message, but the very moment he brings up the resurrection, it's, ah, we're done with you now. This is, this is babbling. This is babble talk, as we heard in Acts 17. They said, just away with you now. They laughed him off of the hill. They said, forget this. This is crazy. Who, who needs to hear this? A resurrection of the dead? Are you kidding me? Ah, go back to Nazarene where you came from. Or he stands before the council and he says, it's because of the resurrection of Jesus. And they tear their clothes and they pour sackcloth and ashes and they pick up stones with which to kill him. You know, it's funny how in our lives today we can walk around and we can invite people to church, invite them to be VBS as we should, invite them to BFG, all these things that we do. Yeah, yeah, okay, that sounds great. Uh, what time? Where is it? I'll meet you there. Yeah, that sounds good. But then if you ever sat down on your lunch break and tried to tell that same person you're inviting to church and has always been real receptive and you say, hey, let me tell you what the gospel really says. It says you're a sinner. And you deserve death and hell and eternal punishment. But a man named Jesus came. He was actually God who took on human flesh. And he came and he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. And then he died the death you deserve. But oh yeah, three days later he got up out of the grave and walked away. And now he's still living. He sits at the right hand of God. And he's here to tell you that your sins can be forgiven through his blood. 
That's kind of the response you normally get, isn't it? They just stare at you blankly, if they've even listened, or they'll try to push you off, say, no, 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 I don't want to hear that. But sometimes we have to remember the message that we say, we, we read about Paul and all the people going up to the resurrection and go, whoa, you're crazy. It's not any different today, but it's still the message that saves people. Paul understands something that we need to understand every day, every second of the day, that the resurrection is the central point of the gospel. The resurrection ought to be the central point of our lives. Paul here looks at Ananias and all the other Jews, and he says, you don't get it, do you? Up to this point in this passage, it sounded vaguely familiar to another trial we record in Luke 23 and 24 when Jesus is stood before Herod and Pilate. And he says, are you the king of the Jews? Again, they're looking for that sedition for the death sentence. And Jesus says, you have said so, not me. But yeah, it's true, but you said it. And he stands before the high priests and the elders and they throw all these accusations and he's quiet before them and he keeps telling them, but I am here for your good. I am here because of all that the law and the prophets wrote about. As a matter of fact, after he's resurrected, and Luke records this shortly after the resurrection, it's the trial, crucifixion, resurrection, and then Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And he's walking with two men. And they are just in a deep, dark depression because of everything that has just happened. And Jesus has hidden their eyes from recognizing who he is. And he says, what is this that you are talking about? And they say, are you the only person in Jerusalem who has not heard of these things that have happened in the last days? And they start telling him about the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. And he says, but some people say he's alive now. And Jesus, still shielding his identity from them, walks along. And it says in Luke that he started with the law, the prophets, Moses, walk them all the way through and show them how it's necessary for the Christ to suffer for their salvation. Paul says, you want to say to me, I don't believe the law and the prophets because I profess Jesus? You don't believe the law and the prophets because you don't profess Jesus. It's not enough just to nominally say, yeah, we believe the law and the prophets, but you have to confessionally say, Christ is Lord. That's the only saving thing that's going to come from this. And Paul is hammering this point home. He says, it's the resurrection, it's the resurrection, it's the resurrection. Why? He tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, without the resurrection, we have no hope. Without the resurrection, we are wasting our time here right now. We could be sitting out on a lake sweltering in the sun instead of sweltering in a warehouse. But he says, it's because of the resurrection you're here. And don't miss that this morning. Because as you walk through life, there are dark days. There are days filled with struggle. There are days filled where you go, I don't know how I can make it. There is bad news that comes, and without the resurrection, there is no hope. There's not. But God says there is a resurrection. There is eternal hope. He says you deserve death because of your sin. But through the death that I died, Sin has died. We wonder why so many people reject the resurrection and push it away. Here's a simple answer. Satan hates the resurrection. Because the resurrection spells his death sentence. And that's the hope that we have. That's the good news of the gospel. The Psalms say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will be glad and rejoice in it. Now in my house, morning is not a happy time for most of us. I happen to be one of the blessed people that when the alarm goes off, I'm ready to go for the day. I'm ready to attack the day, have a conversation, do whatever. Everyone else in my house, it's talk to me after lunch and we might be okay then. You're going to need to tone it down a little bit in the morning. You're pretty annoying. You got to, no, we're not going there yet. 
And so I always try to remind them, not necessarily in love, but in Christian sarcasm, this is the day the Lord has made. Be awake and rejoice and glad in it. But for some of us, we hear that verse and we go, yeah, but you don't know what I have to deal with tomorrow. You don't know the boss I have to work with. You don't know the news I just heard last week from the doctor. This is not a day of rejoicing. But Paul whispers to you this morning, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. All this bad news, the trials that you're going through, Paul whispers, it's because of the resurrection. And within that whisper is all the hope in the world. He says, the resurrection is true. The tomb is empty. Christ has defeated sin and death forever. So no matter what you face tomorrow, no matter what's on your agenda, when you wake up, you can say, I am alive, not just for today, but for all of eternity. This is indeed a day worth rejoicing, and I will be glad in it because the resurrection has happened. No matter what sin I face, no matter what struggle I have, no matter the anxiety, the depression, the worry, the guilt, whatever it is I face, Christ has defeated it in the tomb and has resurrected and given you the hope as well. Let that sink in. I fear for too many of us, we think too often, well, yeah, we have this sin, this abstract thing, or I'm a sinner, okay, whatever, but Jesus has paid it all. For others of us, we are just wrecked by the guilt of our sin. There may be some of you sitting here this morning going, I'm surprised the roof hasn't collapsed in on me yet. If the people in here knew what I had done, they wouldn't have shaken my hand during that weird greeting time. They'd have kicked me out of here. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. And yet he still died for you. He still offers you grace and forgiveness. He still offers you hope in the place of guilt. One of my favorite theologians, Martin Luther, he struggled with the guilt of sin before he found the grace of Christ. He was training to be a monk, and the other monks there had to separate him from his room sometimes and had to bring him out because he would literally beat himself so severely trying to atone for his sins that he would nearly beat himself to death. He struggled with lots of things. He struggled with spiritual warfare, and he knew what it was like to stare down the devil and to be, be feeling the crushing weight of the guilt of sin. He says this about that. He says, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell for, for it, he says, tell him this. Now again, many of us know that feeling. We know what it's like to say, this church will never accept me. Jesus can never accept me. The sin I've been hiding and struggling with, it weighs on me too much. And the devil keeps bringing it up, keeps bringing it up, keeps bringing it up. Luther says, tell the devil this the next time. He says, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know of one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. He says, the next time the devil stares at you because he hates the resurrection, and he says, did God really say that you're free from sin and guilt? Did God really say that he has gone to prepare a place for you? Did God really say that he has saved you from your sins? Stare him down and say, yeah, he did. Jesus Christ, Son of God, paid my penalty on the cross, was dead, buried for three days, but he ain't there anymore, devil. And he's coming for you. Your days are numbered. Yeah, I'll struggle for a little while, but I have eternity with Christ. You, 
It's not the case for you. Jesus is greater than our guilt of sin. Jesus is greater than our sin and our struggles. That is the message of the resurrection of hope, and that's what Paul is saying here to the high priest and the council. He's saying, I am here because I declare to you the message of salvation. Let's get it right. You're not here because I'm saying Jesus is king. I'm not here because you, you think I'm trying to raise up a new rebellion. I'm here because you want me dead, because I am telling you you need to trust Jesus for your sins. And they're demanding an apology text continues and says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Felix right here, he sees what's going on. He says, This is a religious argument, but I'm in a little bit of trouble with Rome. If I declare Paul is innocent, he goes back to Jerusalem, the high priest and Sanhedrin kill him. If I say he's guilty so I can keep him away from the Jews, that means he's guilty of sedition, which means Rome's going to kill him. So Paul's innocent. And so Felix just kind of says, you know what? We'll just call a timeout. I'm going to call in another expert here, and when he comes, I'll decide your case. But we'll, we'll keep Paul in prison for a little bit. Y'all go on back to Jerusalem. But basically what Paul is under now here is a pretty glorified house arrest. Yeah, he's in prison, there's guards around him, but anyone can come to him at any time, bringing him his needs, meeting his needs, to minister to him, do whatever Paul needs. And we hear that sometimes when we go, but that's not fair. Yeah, but Jesus has a different agenda. Jesus has taken the gospel to the ends of the earth. He told Paul he's going to Rome to profess Christ, and he's going to pause here for a little bit for two years. We don't know why God had him there for two years, but he was there. But listen to what Paul does during that time. Verse 24 says, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Again, this seems that Paul is a really great guy for making new friends, doesn't it? Hey, Paul, I just saved your life. Why don't you come up here and tell me a little bit more about the way? And we read this and we go, okay, why does Felix get so mad about that? Well, notice who else is with Felix. His wife, Drusilla. Drusilla was a young lady. Drusilla was apparently a very beautiful young lady. And Felix, when he was married, and Drusilla was married to someone else, saw Drusilla and said, I think I'd like her for a wife. And through trickery, he stole her from another man and made her his wife, though she was much younger than him. And so now Paul is staring at him and talking about self-control and righteousness. It's very much like when Nathan went to David and said, David, you stole that woman. You're a sinner. And now Paul is saying for Felix going, yeah, it's not just enough to know about the way, you also got to live it, too. got to profess Jesus. Self-control, righteousness, it's not just that, but it's because of the resurrection. We can have hope, and we can work to live more like Christ. Christ will redeem us and sanctify us through the resurrection. And for two years, this went on. And it says that Felix had hoped that some money would be presented to him. He was hoping for a bribe so that Paul would be set free. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. We look at that and we hear all of this because Paul wouldn't stop telling the truth of the resurrection. All of this because he just wanted to give hope to people. 
All of this because he wanted to declare to you and me that Christ has paid your penalty and that you can live within the hope of resurrection every day. We sang songs about it earlier today, about what that does for us to live in the hope of resurrection, to know that the crushing weight of the guilt of sin and death, we don't have to hold on to that anymore. Christ has freed us from that. Live in that. Take heed in that. Live in that promise daily. Believe in the gospel today that he has paid for the penalty. We leave Paul here and he's still in prison. Still a year of tumult. And still a lot of hard times ahead. Charles Wesley, as we mentioned earlier, he faced a lot of the same things that Paul did. It was during this time, after the man that demanded apology, hit him with his cane after he told him he was still a Pharisee, after the riot had broken out in the church, he would write one of his many hymns. And he would write, Rejoice the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore. Rejoice, give thanks, and sing, and triumph forevermore. Rejoice in glorious hope. Jesus the judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. We soon shall hear the archangel's voice. The trump of God shall sound rejoice. Lift up your heart. Lift up your voice. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. About three years later, Charles Wesley would go back to St. Ives where they told him he would never preach the gospel again. And he would write in his diary that day, At St. Ives, I've no one offered to make the least disturbance. Indeed, the whole place is outwardly changed in this respect. I walk the streets with astonishment, scarce believing it's St. Ives. It is the same throughout all the country. Remember, three years ago, they wanted to kill him. They were trampling on old ladies as they were dragging them out of the church. And here he's walking freely about the streets with no opposition. It's totally outwardly changed because of the message. He says, it is the same throughout all the country. All opposition falls before us. As we take the gospel to Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth, there will be opposition, but not even the gates of hell can stop us. All opposition falls before us, even death itself.